0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. As we continue our series through the book of Genesis, on this adventure we're taking with the patriarchs, these leaders of God's people who we're finding are anything but perfect. And that's an understatement. How about that line we sang, Can thy sovereign goodness be unkind? Well, seems like it sometimes. It seems like the way God orchestrates our lives lack kindness. Sometimes it seems like God's ways lack wisdom, goodness, compassion. There's a lot of suffering in this world, in my life, in your life, in this world. There's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of reason, legitimate reason, to say, Lord, what are you up to? How are you on your throne when things are the way they are. How are you good? How are you wise? It's one thing to say God's king, he's sovereign, he's powerful, but it's another thing to say in all of that, with all the suffering, he's good and he's kind. I love how that hymn ended. Um, I am yours, you're mine, and I am blessed. (laughs) That doesn't Assume or require that everything makes sense, be resolved yet, be painless, have no struggle, have no mess, have no challenge. No, I am yours, you're mine, and I'm blessed. That's the message. And His sovereign goodness is always kind, even though it can seem so hard sometimes. And man, we're learning this in the book of Genesis. We have seen very frail and fallen humans in a very dark and fallen world do really stupid, sinful, weak things over and over again. And these are the ones we look to as the leaders among God's people through whom He's continuing His great plan of redemption. It's not the people who really messed up and just, you know, I got pushed to the side. No, these are the main ones He's working through. And they're a mess, over and over again, doing foolish things. Boy, we could spend a long time just recounting all the things that we've seen these people of God do. This isn't story, these aren't stories about those pagans out there, those bad people. This is us. This is the people of God we're talking about here. Let's stop any pretension that we've all got our acts together and we've all arrived. please. It couldn't be further from the truth. The reason you're here this morning, I hope you realize, it's a great act of humility coming, knowing that if you don't gather with God's people, you'll die. You'll die. You'll, you'll wither. You'll lose life and light and direction and edification. You won't be who God's created you to be unless you go to the places and the resources he's given you to grow. And that's why we're here, and that's why we go to His Word like we do now, to hear from God through His Word as He continues to teach His people things we need to hear just as much as them. When I kicked this series off, this latest third installment of the book of Genesis, I I made a point in the beginning that the Bible says some things that are really strange to us. Really strange. And these stories we're looking at in this ancient context are strange, and it's easy to say, what in the world does this have to do with me? But, two things, realize we need to hear from places and people different than our own, and time periods different than our own, or we'll get stuck thinking the only reality is the one we've experienced, and so we need these voices from very different times and places. But, As we keep seeing, human beings can be very different in some ways, but not in the most fundamental ways. Not regarding what we're made for and what our greatest needs are, what our greatest problems are, and what these solutions to those problems are. That's always been, always will be the same. And so please realize that these stories of these ancient people that in shallow ways are way different than we are, Fundamentally, we need to hear from God as He works in their lives because we desperately need to learn right along with them, and that's the assumption of the Bible that you're going to enter into this and learn right along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Sarah. You're going to learn right along with them. That's what we've been doing, and that's what we'll do this morning. I love that the Bible doesn't edit, it doesn't filter, it doesn't try to make it just a little better. No, it shows us, these heroes of the faith, with all their faults on display. Not sanitizing or minimizing the mess we're in, but seeing it for what it is and working a solution in the midst of all of it. God is on the move. And in our story, we'll start in Genesis 29, God's on the move. Even though Jacob has moved from the promised land, and gone all the way back to where Abraham started. Did you know these colors mean something? Blue and yellow. Did you know that? You aware of that? As we did our reading services, the readers, when they were in the promised land, would move over here. And as they would drift away from the promised land, they'd move over to the blue thing. It's not to disparage blue in any way. Just a symbol, right? Uh, Yeah, right, yellow. Sorry, yes, thank you. Man, I need. See, you need people. You need the people of God to correct you. But you're like, yes, you move to yellow. It's not to disparage yellow, but it's just it's symbolic of this movement. We move we, we move toward God and His ways and His places, and we move away. And now Jacob has moved away. He's in yellow in our story in chapter 29 because he came up with this plan. Even though God said the blessing would be his, he and his mother come up with a plan to completely connive and swindle his aging blind father and his big brother. That's that's the hero we're talking about this morning. That's where we are, and we get it on full display. And now he's moved away from all his family, his mother who loved him dearly, his father who didn't love him dearly. His brother who's mad at him, and because his brother's threatening murder, he's out of there by the encouragement of his mother, and he's away from all the security, significance, all all the identification. He's on the run. He's in a rough situation here. And he's 20 years in this situation. 20 years. The Bible's not sports center. Doesn't condense it. God doesn't just do things in little 30-minute snippets, just the highlights. No, 20 years he's in this situation over here, longer than some of you have been alive. And that's a long time, and that's where he is. We need to be patient. And so, But still, God's on the move. He's returned to the original homeland. God's on the move, bringing about his plan of redemption in the midst of all the mess. And where we left off last week was with a great blessing that in the midst of all this conniving and his tough situation, God meets him in the wilderness and, remember, gave him that dream. He gave him this vision of a ladder coming from heaven to earth showing him that God is active, God is working, that he's connecting heaven and earth. He's never going to leave him, and he has this experience, and he names the place Bethel, the house of God, Bethel, the house of God, the place of God's presence. And he leaves that place, but the lesson he needs to learn is when he leaves that place, he never leaves God's presence. God's not some tribal deity just fixed on one place. No, he's everywhere present with his whole being. And for his people, he's there to bless and provide. That's what Jacob's having to learn and what we're having to learn as well. And what we're finding in this mess is God grants success, but it doesn't mean he's giving approval to the way that's coming about all the time. People read the Bible, and if there's not a constant rejection of something that happens, they assume God's for it when it's part of his plan. No, God has means that he works within that bring about his perfect goals, even though he may hate those means sometimes. The greatest example is the crucifixion of Christ. Nothing more evil that ever happened, but nothing more that God used for good and for glory. And so Jacob knew God's sovereignty, and he's on this journey of learning it better. His sovereign goodness is what he needs to learn better. And what's beautiful is we can read ahead. My daughter Caroline, there are some ways we are scary similar. Some ways we couldn't be more different. I hate spoilers, like, I don't, I, the movie for me is all about discovery. Do you know what Caroline does when she reads a book? She goes to the end. Starts there. Reads what happens and then goes, Oh, it's just, what are you doing? It, it makes me, When I see her do it with a new book, I have to leave because it's so upsetting to me. Well, it can be very helpful in the Bible when we get to see the end. And what's great is, as we're with Jacob on this journey... We see where he ends up. Listen to where he ends up. At the end of his life, as an old man like Isaac was when he swindled his father, and he's blessing his son Joseph, listen to what he says. He refers to God this way. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Oh, is that great? He gets the lesson so beautifully. Oh, there are all sorts of detours and peaks and valleys and backpedalings and failures and sin and and weakness along the way. But it's good to be able to say he got there. He got to this beautiful perspective of God's sovereign goodness. And that's where God wants to take us this morning as we learn from Jacob. So let's read our story. Here we go. Chapter 29, verse 1. You ready? Ready? To hear about God at work and his sovereign goodness in the midst of the mess. Genesis 29.1. Help us, Lord, now as we go to your word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone in the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Let's pause here. A well in the Bible are literal places. This actually happened. But there's, there's important symbolism to things like a well. A well is often... A symbol of God's provision. And if you read the title here, even though we're not there in the story yet, we find that here Jacob is finding a wife. Remember, these leaders need to perpetuate the line of the Messiah. God says, I'm going to solve the problems of human history through my anointed, chosen representative who will come and take away your sin and restore relationship with me and make all things new again. And so they're waiting for that one. Is it Abraham? No. Is it Isaac? No. Is it Jacob? No. Is it Joseph? No. But we're on our way to him. This whole story is on our way to Jesus. And as we get there, we keep seeing these leaders of God's people learning important things. And so they need a wife. A wife. Jacob needs a wife. If the, the messianic line, that seed of the woman will continue through him, he's got to have a wife to do that. Just like Abraham needed a wife, and just like Isaac needed a wife, and sent his servant to find one. Remember, Kenny preached on that a few weeks ago. And the servant goes, and, he, and where does he find Rebecca at a well? Now, in that story, uh, we we have a little switch in what happens. Rebecca provides for the camels of the servant. So we have a well again. We have some similarities now to chapter 24. So we're seeing this continuing story unfold. So we've got a well seen again, a place of God's provision, in particular for a wife, but even more importantly, for a means through which Jesus will come. And Jacob's there. And there's sheep and there's shepherds. And here we go, verse four. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? He said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. Now check out Jacob. Classic Jacob here, watch. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. He shows up in a foreign land, meets some guys in a few minutes, asks some questions, and starts ordering them around. What are you doing just sitting here? Sheep shouldn't be sitting here. Water your sheep. He uses three He commands. Water. The sheep. Go. Pasture. Come on. Let's go. What are you doing? What are you doing just sitting around? Nobody could ever accuse Jacob of being a slacker. With all his faults... The dude took initiative. He did, and he was arrogant in that, and it's so true, isn't it, that very often our greatest strengths are the source of our greatest weakness. And here he is, arrogant, brash, bold, confident, and ordering these shepherds around. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? And his activity is contrasted very intentionally with their passivity. Verse 8. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stones rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And Jacob's not having it. Watch. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Now check that out. So we just found out that Laban is Rebekah's brother. That's crazy. So, so here we have Rebecca's brother, the mom of Jacob, who worked with Jacob to, uh, to swindle his father and brother. And now he's on the lamb, and he's found their, their, um, their family again. And he's got Uncle Laban here, his mother's brother. Then check this out. Remember we were told the stone is very large and the shepherds, plural, were waiting apparently for more help to move it because it was so big and heavy. Certainly one person couldn't move it. But look at Jacob. Jacob came there and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's brother. He just charged right in there and as the shepherds are there, he takes over. I don't know if it's miraculous strength, if he was just really strong, but he just takes charge and rolls this massive stone out of the way and does the job these shepherds should have been doing. And he already changes the dynamic in coming to this family of being from the one in need to the one providing here. It's amazing. We're getting a real glimpse into Jacob's character, his personality, his faults, and his strengths. He opens it, he sees Rachel, and he says, let's get the show on the road. He feeds the flock, and then verse 11, that Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, please don't read any romance into this. It's just familial affection and joy. He's thankful he's here. Um, You know, family's really important. Talk about an important perspective from the past in our transient society. And by family, I don't just mean DNA. I mean family. In the New Testament, the ultimate family is the family of God. That's why brother, sister, mother, fathers in the faith, spiritual children is this theme in the Bible. The family of God needs to be important. That's why we're commanded in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss, with affection, in other words. If you don't do that literally, you better figure out another way to show affection, deep warmth and affection like we're family because we are in Christ. It's a good word from the past. And so he weeps aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. Told you there was no romance in it. And brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you're bone of my bone. No, no I'm sorry. I went back to Genesis. You are my bone and my flesh. I <laughs> just inserted that in there. Um, I'm doing a wedding next week. There you go. And he stayed with him a month. A month. Talk about another blast from the past. Man, family comes into town and a weekend feels like a long time. Now they just show up and no problem staying for a month. How about years? How about decades? Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? (laughs) The con is on, people. He gets the ball rolling here. Make a little deal. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Interesting phrase. We'll get back to that. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter Rachel. Seven years. Now, here we have this, what's this father? You know, uh, I, I've done uh, hundreds of weddings. And th- typically, I think in almost everyone. There's this who gives this woman to be married to this man and the dad who walks her down the aisle says her mother and I do He sits down and somebody's like what's that all about? Well, there's this family connection Where this person's part of you now it can be done and Terrible, abusive, authoritarian sorts of ways that have nothing to do with God's design. But there's something beautiful about she is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And we are giving her to you to be a wife here. Not as mere possession or property, but as family here. Family, that's what's happening. And this matters. And this can be abused and it can be ugly, but it can be beautiful. And so we have this, this, I'll work for you seven years. Now, you need to realize that still in a lot of the world, there are things called dowries. And again, that can be abused and be a very ugly thing. But there's this idea that, oh, well, for 20 years, we've poured resources into this child. And now this child will become part of your family and serve you for the rest of her life. How about a little sum for the effort? And you're not selling the person like it's a slave, but, but there's an understanding that, that you're going to benefit for the rest of her life now. So, so what do you think? And so now he makes a deal. Now, in this context, seven years of labor is a crazy agreement. It's crazy. It's way more than you'd ever be willing to give in this situation. But Jacob's willing to give it. He's desperate. He's a desperate man. And Laban knows it. And he's exploiting that desperation. (laughs) Seven years, Laban knows he's got him. He knows he's desperate. He knows he's lost perspective. And he's going to ride this thing as long as he can. And watch the deceiver, Jacob, get deceived. He's met his match. Tell me, what should your your wages be? He says, I'll work seven years for this daughter, for Rachel. Seven years. I'll serve you seven years, verse 19. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I give her to any other man. Stay with me. I want you to listen to Laban's answer you realize how non-committal it is? You know, I've realized it in my life. I'm really good at saying something that sounds like I'm saying more than I am. Because I don't want to commit. I want to be able to go back and say, well, no, actually, I didn't say that. And that's exactly what's going on. Laban's saying, well, that's better than another alternative. He doesn't say, deal. He's leaving it ambiguous, very intentionally. And he says, well, that's better than another option, I suppose not a commitment. It's not a vow. It's not an oath. It's not a deal. It's better than other alternatives, I suppose. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now that sounds horrible and crass and crude and and completely like he's lost perspective, and that's because he has. You know, rabbis for centuries tried to figure out ways to take that horrible way of describing his wedding, his marriage, and they've tried, and you can't. It's just bad. It's just crude. It's a man who's completely lost perspective. Now, it's easy to say, what a horrible man. And I don't want to minimize that there's something really bad going on here. But... Let's try to be a bit empathetic. And what's driving this guy? Now, he grew up with a dad we're told didn't love him. That'll eat at you. (laughs) He grew up with a mom who did, and now he doesn't have her in his life either. He falls in love with, with Rachel and is taken by her beauty and works seven years to be able to have this beauty he deeply desires. We can lose perspective in five minutes. Never mind seven years of dwelling on something we deeply want. And here he is, he's lost perspective. I've served my seven years, let's get this on the road. And and he's he's just, he sounds like his brother. Give me that red stuff to eat. It's amazing how similar he sounds like to Esau, who lost all perspective, gave up his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Ah, Jacob, you're sounding like your brother that you tricked. That's what's happening here. Give me my wife. Verse 22, So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter... Leah, the one who has weak eyes. What? He took Leah. What's going on here? Now, Leah, we're told, wasn't as beautiful as Rachel. Now, it uses this phrase, and again, boy, you read commentaries and theologians, and there are all sorts of ideas. It means weak eyes or faint eyes. Some people say, "Well, that must mean she didn't see well." No, I think if that were the case, it would say Rachel had, uh, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had 20/20 vision. <laughs> no, it says she had weak eyes, and Rachel was beautiful. So the point is not that she didn't see well. Some people even say maybe she wasn't beautiful because related to her eyes—crossed eyes, or bulging eyes, or something. I don't know—but uh, an eye problem, a disfigurement—I don't know, but. But the point is, Rachel was beautiful. Leah was not. Jacob fell in love with the beauty of Rachel. He woke up in the morning, and it was Leah. And so, what does he do? He's incensed. It was Leah. I mean, it's so understated. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Yet, yeah, wha- what? What? <laughs> yeah, it was late at night, the feast, plenty of wine, darkness, a veil. He didn't know. I think Leah was a willing participant mainly because it was a matter of survival. We do a lot for survival, don't we? Look what, look what Jacob does. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? One of the worst experiences of being a parent, being a dad for me, is to be right in the middle of scolding my child for something that I know he learned from me. And sometimes it's mid sentence. I stop. Why are you so irritable? Why are you talking to your sister that way? That's actually a phrase I've used with her, I think. I, yeah, it's really troubling. I think that's what's going on here. I, I think Jacob is rebuking Laban. How could you? deceive me. Remember what Esau says after Jacob deceived him? He's named rightly the heel grabber, the usurper, the one who grabs for things that aren't his, and don't belong to him. He's a liar, he's a deceiver. And here's Jacob saying, you've deceived me. You've got to be pretty self-deceived to not be rebuked by yourself when you say that. And I I think there's got to be something coming alive in Jacob realizing, oh my goodness, I have been swindled. The swindler's been swindled. The deceiver's been deceived. And Laban said, it is, now check this out. This heaps it on even more. Watch. (laughs) This is amazing. Why have you, Laban said, well, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Oh. Is Jacob the younger or older? Younger. He got the blessing instead of his older brother. There, there is an orchestrated rebuke and discipline in this whole scene here, right down to details. It's not how it's done here. Well, it's not where it's done where I'm from either, but that's how God designed it, and I connived to speed up his plan. That's, that's what's happening. Why have you deceived me? We don't do it that way in our country. And watch old Laban still at work. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. <gasps> Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Now, what happens here? I honestly, think, as I've studied this, I, my whole life actually, till I just this week, I thought he worked another seven and then married Rachel. I, no, I think... Uh, it all happened in that same week. I honestly think, I'm not sure, but I think that Laban wanted to just pay for one wedding. <laughs> I'm, seri- I'm serious. I'm really serious about this. I, I, he has this feast, and he says, you know, I could, I could get both my daughters married off in one feast. To a family member who's going to say, I, this guy is good. Not morally, but he's good, right? You got got to respect. I mean, game respects game here. And Jacob's got to be saying, ah, good one. Good one, you got me. And so he does. He works. He marries Rachel in another seven years. And with it come the servant Laban gave to his female servant, Billah, to his daughters, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. All right. What do we need to know here? Well, um, God operates with sovereign grace, not karma. That's the first point I want to make here. Karma is fascinating. In my lifetime, I have seen karma be something that I never heard to karma being something I hear almost on a daily basis. The influence of Eastern religions where Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Sikhism teach this idea, this word karma, means, which means events. So the idea basically is you do good, good comes back, the endless life or the next. in reincarnation, you come back in a better form if you did more good. You come back in a worse form if you did worse, uh, worse things. And so it's this ultimate justice. And there's something in us that loves this idea of karma. I mean, you could spend days, nay, weeks, looking at videos titled Instant Karma. Have you seen them? Who's seen Instant Karma videos? Oh, yeah, they're amazing. It's where people get their comeuppance right away. I I saw one that was just amazing. This guy in China takes this giant rock, and he's going to break into this convenience store by throwing this rock through the plate glass window. He's there with an accomplice, and he goes up to the window, throws it against the window. It bounces off the plate glass right in his face. And his friend sees this happen, and he starts to run away and falls over his friend in his effort to escape. And you see that, and you say, that's how life should always be. (laughs) But it's not. It's not. Isn't that interesting? We like this idea of karma. All kinds of expressions. You know some of them about karma, right? Isn't that karma? What goes around comes around. Now, if you believe in karma, I want to acknowledge there's something right in this idea. Because actually the Bible says things like a man reaps what he sows. It's appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. We desperately want justice. So often there isn't justice and we desperately want it. And when we see it happen without even a delay, it's like, yes, that's how it should be. God, just do it all that, all the, all that time. All the, uh, do it that way all the time. Except when I threw the rock. See, because if you love karma, you must think you're doing really well in the goodness category. And everybody else needs karma in a bad way, but you're going to get it in a good way. Think about that assumption. The Bible does talk about justice, and it instills in us a desire for justice rightly. But if there's not grace... Then what? <laughs> then what? So God's sovereign goodness is sovereign grace. And that's what we need to realize. It's not just karma. It's not just what goes around comes around. There's a huge difference. It's not just the law of karma, some energy that comes back to get you. It's a personal God who made you, who loves you, who is working in the midst of the mess, yes, bringing justice, but bringing grace. To your life. It's amazing. Listen to one commentator. The words, behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of anticlimax. And this moment, a miniature of man's disillusion and experience from Eden onward. Is that good? Yeah. Jacob has a rude awakening, literally. A rude awakening. He wakes up, and all he had hoped for and worked for and lost perspective over wasn't what he thought. And there's a very real sense where we need to realize that anytime time you fi- follow sinful ways, leave God's paths, it's always Leah in the morning. Sin never keeps its promises. It never fulfills the expectations. When we lose perspective and even good gifts of God become idols to us, become inordinate objects of adoration, when we lose our perspective with an all-consuming desire for those gifts of God, then we are in trouble. And those gifts never satisfy because they were never ultimately intended to. And that's what Jacob finds here. Now, to understand this, we just need to deal for a moment with this whole idea of Leah's not-so-beautifulness. This is really hard for us to deal with. Many of us have felt the pain and sting of not feeling beauty in many ways. And what we have here is Jacob being deceived and not getting what he wants. So so this idea of beauty, Rachel's beautiful, Leah, not so much. Now, we have a hard time with that, and understandably, and I love Leah, but we need to deal with the passage as it says and deal with the fact that there are a lot of times in the Bible, the Bible talks about loveliness and beauty. It talks about the city of Zion one day that we go to as more beautiful than any other city. It talks about nature in such beautiful ways, and it talks about beauty in people, even in physical ways. We see lots of examples of this in the Bible as we think about the beauty of Rachel and the not so much of Leo. So what's going on here? How could God think this way? How could He do this? Well, uh, we need to appreciate that there are some things that are beautiful. It talks about Sarah being particularly beautiful and Rebecca being particularly beautiful, very literally attractive in appearance. And Esther was beautiful, and God used that. And Tamar were said were very attractive, and it led to great tragedy. And Job's daughters were told were beautiful. In appearance, and Abigail, we're told, was beautiful. And actually, every time I've read the description of Abigail and her husband Nabal, I have honestly thought, I wonder if people say that about Donna and me, my wife and me. Listen to what it is, and you'll see why I say that. Here's a description of this, this couple. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and Beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. <laughs> I honestly read that. And I say, I bet people have said that about Don and me. Yes, I, I believe that. But but women are called beautiful in the Bible. Oh, but you know men are too. Same word, but in the masculine form. Translated handsome. Yeah, Joseph we're told was handsome in form and appearance, not just his face, but completely apparently well-built and handsome. Uh, David, we're told, was ruddy and handsome. In particular, his eyes were beautiful.
1: It's very interesting. Adonijah,
0: we're told, was particularly strikingly handsome and beautiful. Now, we live in a culture where we idolize things like beauty, so we're afraid of it. And I can hear you saying, oh, were David's eyes more beautiful than anyone's because everything's beautiful, isn't it? And uh, everything is beautiful in its own way. And, you know, I've seen some dogs in Mexico that weren't beautiful at all. <laughs> and we're afraid of saying something's beautiful for fear of that we're going to idolize it or then compare and say, well, someone's not beautiful. And now everybody needs to be equally everything. And it's a strange world where you can't even appreciate beauty. Have you ever seen Kenny Clark's eyes? Kenny Clark has be- kind Is Kenny here? Where is he? He has be- Does it, Betsy, tell-, tell me his eyes weren't part of the attraction. Were they not? I'm serious. He has beautiful eyes. Mine, not so much. Boring and brown. I mean, really nothing. And you might have said, now, Eric. Do- no, I'm fine, really. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. We are so weird about these things. Understandably, but to get this right, you can't even appreciate this story if there isn't something objective about it that you can say is beautiful, right? Uh, and we, we, lose our, we take ourselves so seriously and we're so concerned about this, understandably, that we, we can't even understand the story. We can't even give a compliment anymore. We can't even tell a joke anymore. Um, I grew up in the Northeast near New York where people make jokes all the time about people's appearance. Now, it can be bad and cutting, but not necessarily. And I've actually studied humor. It's one of my, I'm most fascinated by humor. And do you know they did a massive survey for years studying humor in different cultures? Because humor is very universally experienced, but very subjectively appreciated. One of the funniest books I've ever read was a book of Chinese humor, because I didn't find anything in it funny, which was hilarious to me. I would, we would sit around and read these These stories of Chinese humor, and they were so, they were completely lost on us, that it was hilarious how completely lost they were. But uh, there are certain cultures that get, so Scottish, any Scottish people in here know, you know, Scottish culture, yeah, they kind of give you a hard time for all kinds of things. And do you know, they did surveys, the funniest jokes in each country of the world. Very interesting, you learn so much about different cultures and countries based on what jokes they find funny. You want to hear the funniest joke in Scotland? Woman gets on a bus. Bus driver, she's carrying a baby. The bus driver says, Oh, it's the ugliest baby I've ever seen. The woman is incensed and offended, and she goes to the back of the bus and sits down next to a man and says, That bus driver just insulted me. And he said, Well, you should get up, go up there, and tell him off. Here, I'll hold your monkey. Now, now, we Scottish people are fine with that, right? That's hilarious. Yeah, but we, I mean, you're, you can't say that. All babies are equally beautiful. No, no, you're not. Now, they usually adjust after a while, but some are like, whoa. So, now, some of you are going to be mad at me for this, but I'm doing, I thought a lot about this. I did. I, I want to get this idea out there that there are things that are beautiful. These pinkies are not beautiful. They get jacked up playing football. So, yeah, it's okay, really. I've seen people, like, recoil in horror before this one was fused. Yeah, it, it's so it's okay. But the reason this is so hard for us is because we take things like beauty, gifts from God, and they become all-consuming ends in themselves. They become idols, they become everything to us. So we sort of go to one extreme or another, acting like there is nothing beautiful, really, and nothing ugly, really, or we see beautiful things as things God made for our enjoyment, but not as the end, not as the idol. Kenny's blue eyes cannot become his identity, right? But those things do like that. And we, and we manage our lives around them. And they become these all-consuming identifiers for us. And we judge other people by these things. And we value them or compare ourselves. And before you know it, it's this very ugly, confusing thing that Kenny's going to preach on. Watch it next week. Bearing children is going to become this in this context. And so we've got to appreciate beauty in this world, but we've got to never see it as an end in itself. We see Jacob meet his match. The scoundrel is learning here and he wakes up in the morning and he doesn't get what he expected and sin always will fail us in these ways. Always. We live in a world like Laban that wants to exploit our weaknesses, wants to exploit our idolatries, wants to convince us in any way it can to give ourselves completely to sex or pleasure that you get from substances or uh, more money or more influence or more popularity or more uh, hits on my twitter feed or more affirmation in some way from something i do and if i can't get it from that i'll get it from becoming someone who acts like i don't care about affirmation and that's what i get affirmation from and it gets so twisted and before you know it, there's idolatry everywhere. We live in a world that is constantly trying to exploit us. There are Labans everywhere. I get about four things in the mail every day from a Laban. i need to play to my weaknesses and play to my idols and play to these inordinate passions I have. Never mind what comes to me through the internet every day. So let's not be Jacob here, inordinate passions. Let's not be Laban taking advantage of people. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's be people of integrity who mean what they say and do what they mean. In even little conversations where we're just not shooting straight. Let's not be like Jacob. Let's store up our treasures in heaven. Let's seek first the kingdom of God. Let's not make gifts from God like beauty ends in themselves. Because the Bible warns us against this tendency. It won't let us go there. It forces us to think more clearly than we typically do. Listen, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Man looks in the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. 1 Peter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be a hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Paul talks about his ministry and says, to understand our ministry, you need to be someone who doesn't take pride in appearance, but in the heart. And how wonderful to know that the most beautiful human that ever lived, we're told from a worldly perspective, had nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him, no stately form or majesty that would draw us to him. He was despised and rejected. He had the most important beauty unimpressive from an external place, but beauty in the most important ways, in godliness, in obedience, in fear of the Lord. That's Jesus. Our greatest strengths can become our greatest weaknesses if we're not careful. And we need to be so careful. And we need to learn from all our mistakes, all our disappointments and failures. And God doesn't leave us with inordinate desires. He disciplines his children Jacob is finding his wife with these displays of strength. Do you realize how different that was than the servant that Kenny said he learned to love when he preached in that passage, who represents Isaac and finding his, his wife near a well? Remember what that servant does when he realizes he's found Isaac's wife? He bows to the ground and he worships the Lord. He doesn't show how strong he is, he fears the Lord, he has a godliness. Oh, we can appreciate beauty. We can see ugly for ugly, but we want to be people who go so beyond that, who don't live in this shallow, banal perspective of life that reduces everything to outward appearance according to the flesh, just what the world values. No, we're people who have God's perspective on life and what really matters and what's beautiful. Listen to Derek Kidner. In Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. Twenty years of drudgery and friction were to weather his character. And the reader can reflect that presumably Jacob is not the only person who needed to have a Laban in his life. Through this man, he also drank deeply of his own medicine of duplicity. Yet, even as the loser he showed at his birth, I'm sorry, even as the loser displayed qualities that were lacking in Esau. The tenacity that showed at his birth and supremely when he wrestles with God enabled him to regard the defeat over Rachel as only a setback on the way to godliness. And that's where he ends up. He becomes more and more close to God. Now, I talked to someone after the first service that said, these things Jacob went through, this lack of love, this lack of security, this this sinful inclination in his heart that we all equally share. she, She said to me, a life of that creates a sucking void in your life. And I, I tell you, it's been powerful for me to prepare this passage the week that Anthony Burdain and Kate Spade both committed suicide. Now, I'm not saying at all. I understand what's going on in their lives, but what I do know is they had everything, both of them. When you add them together, everything the world could give you. Right? Fashion. Hundreds of millions of dollars, swanky apartment in Manhattan, adventures all over the world, loved by people, just looked up to, everything the world values. But no hope, apparently, and and I don't want to make it simplistic, but, but but I do know we can have everything the world gives us. We just still have this sucking hole in our hearts. And here's the great news. Here's the great news. The story doesn't end there. Like in Jacob's life, God is working. Do you know that the God who saves us is the God who loves the outcast? Oh, we've described Leah in some ways, but God loved her. I love Leah. Listen to where we go. I'm going to dip into Kenny's passage just a little bit from next week. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And then even this becomes idolatrous for her. But look, after she has children and Jacob still doesn't love her, look where she goes in verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Judah. Judah. Oh. Do you know what that means? Do you know who came from the line of Judah? The Messiah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Leah becomes the one through whom the messianic line continues. Oh, God loved her. He loves the outcast. And here's the really astounding part of this. He loves the outcast by sending his son who became an outcast for us. He is crucified outside the gate with nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. And he brings what we really need, himself, his righteousness, his sacrificial death on a cross. That's what he brings to us. By becoming one of us and the greatest outcast ever, he came to those who were his own and his own did not receive him. He can relate to Leah. He's there for her and he's there for you as a gracious, sovereign, good God who moves toward us in our suffering and our emptiness and brings us hope in himself through his son Jesus. And let's flee to him. And as we have people up here who are loving to pray with you, come and pray about these holes we have, these ways we seek love and approval and all the wrong ways in these inordinate desires and these perspectives where God needs to be centered and those other things are instead. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to be women and men who are fixed on you, Godward, finding our greatest joy in you and nothing else and no one else. Lord, forgive us for losing perspective and and loving the world and the things of it more than you, our creator and the giver of all good things. Help us to flee to Jesus, the one who became an outcast and ugly for us so we could be your children and brought near to you in reconciliation and forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.